0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians, and we'll begin in chapter 3, verse 14. The sermon text will focus on chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So, Ephesians beginning with chapter 3, verse 14. This is the word of the Lord For this reason I bow my knees before the Father urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the Word of God. Let us pray for him to illuminate the reading and preaching of his Word. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Word. We thank you for the message of the Gospel. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who knits us together into one body. And now, Father, we pray that by that same Spirit you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts that in your word we may see Jesus and his gospel. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, in the structure of the book of Ephesians, as many of you may be aware, we move from... Chapters 1-3 through now, where we move from the so-called indicatives. Paul has been obsessed with telling you all about the Gospel of the grace that we have in Christ Jesus. And now, beginning in chapter 4, Paul starts to tell you about how to live according to that Gospel that has been proclaimed to you. Now, of course... You'll also know that in chapters 4 through 6, we get plenty of indicatives as well. And in fact, next week when I preach on verses 4 through 6, you'll hear some indicatives in Paul's famous chapters of imperatives. But that's okay. Paul's allowed to write a much better letter than I could have. And so Paul moves, though, broadly speaking in this second half, to telling you how to live according to the gospel That has been proclaimed to you. And so Paul here urges you. Now, this word in Greek is the sort of word that a superior officer or a master would use to command their soldiers or their servants. It's the right to command someone as a superior to an inferior. And so Paul says, I, therefore, I. Paul is not just speaking as some guy. Paul is speaking with apostolic authority here. And so as you hear these commands from this chapter, from these few verses, you're to hear this as having God's authority. Because God's word comes from he who has all authority. And Paul is the messenger of the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And so Paul's not just some fellow languishing in a Roman prison. Indeed, he is a prisoner for the sake of the gospel. If you know how Paul came to be in prison in Rome, well, you know that in Acts chapter 21 or 22. Paul is discovered in Jerusalem, keeping company with a Gentile, keeping company with someone whom the Jewish people hated by nature, and in particular, a person who was not allowed to be in the presence of God in the temple. So they assumed that Paul had welcomed this man into the temple. A riot ensued, and that's how Paul got here. That's how he came under arrest. For the crime of living out the fact that God has now opened the way of salvation to Jew and Gentile alike, as we read earlier in Ephesians, back in chapter 2, that Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. That's one aspect of the gospel message. And so Paul speaks here with apostolic authority. He's in prison for the proclamation of the gospel. And now he continues proclaiming the gospel by calling you to action. Now there are those who claim to have faith in Christ, but do not walk in new life. Do not walk worthily of this calling. I had a conversation with my barber many months ago, and she wanted to talk to me about the Gospel. She doesn't believe the Gospel. And one of the reasons why was because she has extended family who claims to believe in Christ, and yet goes on abusing and mistreating their spouses and children. As she put it, faith to them is just fire insurance. And so what a joy to be able to tell her that's not the gospel they believe in then. That is not the gospel. For the gospel leads you to walk in new life. You cannot be one of these people for whom faith is just fire insurance. Because James says in his letter, chapter 2, that such faith is dead. On the other other hand, the world tells you it's good enough to be a good person. And yet, you know that apart from faith in Christ, there is no power in you to be good, to attain to God's goodness. For you remain dead in your sins unless God has made you alive by faith in Christ. And So, without God's Without the faith that is the gift of God, even any good that you do cannot be done for God's glory. And so the answer is that the salvation that you have in Christ Jesus makes you spiritually alive. Faith cannot only be an inward reality, but it must be lived out in action. And so as Paul turns to speak of the action that is required, where does he start? He starts with Christian unity. And so today, in today's passage, we'll look first at what it means to walk worthily of your calling in general, and then we'll dig in deeper to Christian unity as we talk second about walking with humility and gentleness, and third, with patience and bearing with one another, and fourth, maintaining the Spirit's bond of peace. So first, in verse 1, Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So this is what you must first consider, this calling to which you have been called. For there is no power to walk worthily without it. You have been called to unspeakable riches in Christ. Riches, a word that Paul uses again and again throughout this epistle. So let me recap just a few examples from chapters 1 through 3 of the things that you've been called to. You've been united to Christ. The things that are true of Christ in his death, resurrection, and exaltation have been made true of you so that you participate with him in these things. You've been adopted by God the Father so that you are sons and daughters of the living God. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit as an assurance that you will be delivered safe to the new creation when Jesus returns. In Christ, you enjoy resurrection with Him from the dead, so that even now you begin to live in that new life. Christ reigns over the entire universe for the benefit of the church. You are united together as brothers and sisters, as members of God's household. You have hope for life, eternal life in the world to come, where there will be no more sickness, no more tears, no more pain, and where you will know God and see him face to face as your highest good. There are more, but this isn't a sermon about Ephesians 1 through 3. And so consider the worthiness and the perfection of the God who calls you to these things. How grand, how magnificent are these things to which He calls you and these gifts that He gives you. But His standard is the standard of perfect holiness. And so the question now is how should you walk in a manner worthy of this calling? For if you consider that God is holy and that His standard is perfect holiness, you should know that you can't do it in your own strength. For you were dead in sin. You were following the prince of the powers of the air, the enemy. You had no spiritual strength to do anything Good, as though a dead person can spring out of their coffin and start feeding the poor. But Christ, bore your sins on the cross and put them to death. He put the death in you to death so that you, when you have faith in Him, you are made alive. When you embrace Christ by faith, When you lean on him as your only good, your sins are decisively dealt with. And you have been called to new life. And you are empowered to walk in it. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. And so God is calling you to the life of Christ. The Christ who lives in the resurrection. Who lives in the life of the new creation. And so you are starting to live now in the life that you will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. And God calls you and strengthens you to walk worthy of this calling. That's what chapters 4 through 6 of this book are mostly about. And so this new life is God working His power in you. And it is only by His power that you will be able to walk worthily of His calling. And so now we begin to turn to the characteristics of this walk so in verses 2 and 3 Paul speaks of Christian unity. This is where Paul starts for the details of how to walk worthily of your calling. And he starts with humility and gentleness, verse 2. Walking according to your calling means walking in humility and gentleness. So be humble. Now, you think of this as a virtue. Well, praise God for that. Your mind has been transformed. In Greco-Roman culture, humility was not a virtue. Now, to get the meaning of what Paul is saying, it might be translated even as humiliation or debasement. Be debased in the sight of your peers. For in Paul's culture, this attitude... Of humility was the attitude that they taught to slaves. And slaves were not considered part of the human race. This was not an attitude that was appropriate for free persons or for citizens. Humility was beneath an honorable person. It required a subservient attitude. And it was even an offense against nature. For a free person to adopt the attitude of humility. But you are called by God to live differently from the world around you. Now the world today may see some form of humility as a virtue, and yet our world today still deals in status. But you are not to live that way. You are not to elevate yourselves above one another. You are to give up your need to be on top, to be the top dog on the pile. You are to serve others' interests before your own. As Paul writes in Philippians, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's what humility is. Not to defend your own station but to look out for the needs of others. And Paul says with gentleness, to be gentle, to care for those around you, to be kind even when you have a disagreement, to think about biting your tongue when there's a disagreement, to stop needing to get your way all the time, but remember that gentleness is not weakness. For where does gentleness come from? True gentleness comes from knowing that God has your needs cared for. That you don't need to always fight for yourself. John Stott calls gentleness the quality of a strong personality who is nevertheless master of himself and the servant of others or as another commentator put it the absence of the disposition to assert personal rights either in the presence of god or of men indeed 1 corinthians chapter 6 speaks of being willing to be defrauded for the sake of unity and peace in the church now counterexamples abound in society as people strive for attention for notoriety to exert their power over one another to be alphas to silence critics counter examples abound in scripture as well in numbers chapter 16 you read how korah and 250 other leaders of israel opposed moses and tried to elevate themselves as fellow prophets and priests or king saul who opposed the anointed King David and tried to take his life on multiple occasions. Or the Pharisees of Jesus' day who opposed him in part because they loved their lofty position in Jewish society more than they loved the salvation of God. Well, in all these stories, we see how pride and harshness We're met with God's judgment. That's not the way to win. It may be the way to win in society, but it's not the way to win when Christ returns. For God has your back. God is the one who takes care of you, and you don't need to fight for your rights. Consider how David was humble, even as Saul opposed him. For God was the one who had made him king, not man. And so David knew that God would follow through on his promises. And what happened? David's throne and dynasty were established forever. And it was established in Christ. And see especially how Jesus is different from the world around him for these same two words in Greek. Jesus uses these same words to describe himself when he says that he is gentle and lowly in Matthew chapter 11. Same words in the original Greek. Indeed, it is the foolishness of the cross that saves. It is the weakness of the cross that saves Jesus put others first in everything. And in humility, he obeyed his Father, gave up the rights that he had as the Son of God and the Creator of the universe, the Lord over all creation. He gave up these rights and came to earth and even subjected himself to evil human beings by going to the cross. And so Jesus' humility and gentleness led to salvation for the world. And it will lead to the renewal of all things. And what's more, Jesus has been humble and gentle toward you. For you deserve the fate of judgment. You deserve death for your sins. And yet he died for you. He died so that you would not die for your sins, so that he would give you eternal life. And as he guides you in this life toward holiness, how gentle is he with you, for he does not accuse you of any sin, for he knows that your sins have been paid for in himself. And Jesus guides you and corrects you as a loving parent should, not as a harsh master. And so as you walk worthily of your calling, walk in this humility and gentleness. And we turn now also to with patience, bearing with one another in love as another aspect of living according to your calling. Patience and bearing with one another is a practical outworking of humility and gentleness. And And these are two words here that essentially mean the same thing. Patience is literally long-suffering. Bearing with is to be long-suffering with someone who is not merely irritating, but even difficult. Or foolish. So you are to be patient and bear with one another. Now this is not a reason, of course, to excuse abusive behavior, to bury serious issues, to put up with persistent and intentionally harmful behavior. For these things are sins. And they should be dealt with. And Jesus provides a way for the church to deal with these things in a peaceful way that intends for the offender to be restored and to learn to walk in new life. But nevertheless, there are times when it's best to simply be patient, to be long-suffering. Sometimes your brothers and sisters get on your nerves. We've all been kids. Most of us have siblings. We remember this. You know how siblings bug each other. Sometimes it happens in the church too. But Remember what it says in Proverbs 29, verse 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Well, it's not easy to do, is it? That's why there's the appeal here to love, for it is... Love that enables patience and bearing with one another. As it says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. It is not irritable or resentful. Love bears all things, endures all things. But love is not merely a human affection or emotion. If it were... It would be awful hard to be patient and to bear with one another. No. True love originates from God, who is all love. And whose love led him to send his son to die for you. And so as Christ has loved you, you ought to love one another. And his love is poured out into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. Patience with one another is an element of this love. Just as God has shown unbelievable patience toward his people. For despite Israel's centuries of apostasy and sin, he never gave up on his promise to bring the promised offspring, the Messiah, the Savior, through those people. Or look at Jesus' patience with his disciples. As you read in the Gospel account that time and time again the Apostles misunderstand Jesus. They work all the angles to try to gain position over against one another. They even try to keep Jesus from going to the cross. And yet, Jesus remains their faithful Savior, Teacher, and Lord. And so it is with you As you see in Psalm 103, that as a father shows compassion to his children, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he remembers our frame. He knows that we are dust. He does not treat you as your sins deserve, but is patient and compassionate. He gently corrects you for sin. And he grieves for your sake that you were lost in your sins. He rescued you out of your lostness, out of love. And so he shows great patience with you. And as the Lord himself shows patience to you, you also must show the same patience and bear with one another in love. For you are made one in the Holy Spirit. As we now look at verse 3, that you must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now this is not a unity that you create, for it is the Spirit's own unity that you are to live in. For unity is an attribute of God. There are no divisions or parts within the Trinity. There are many ways that we can see this unity at work. But one way is how each member of the Trinity is fully united in their work of creation and redemption. Working together with one aim in mind. The glory of the indivisible God. And so you do not create unity in the church. But you do live in it. This unity is a gift of God for you in his church. And the Holy Spirit is himself the bond. The unity of the Spirit works out in peace with one another. And there will be much more to say about the unity of the Spirit next week. But for now, it's enough to think of the church as the body of Christ. For a healthy body does not seek to harm its members. You can divide the different members of your body. You can think of having yourself as having different bones, different organs, different muscles, and so on. And yet, when your hand takes action to harm another part of your body, we appropriately recognize that as unhealthy. But it goes far beyond not harming yourself, not harming the body of Christ but even to caring for one another. I'm prone to dermatitis on my hands, but I haven't amputated them. I use moisturizing cream on them every day because I want to take care of my hands. They're important to me. And so it is in the church. For peace is not only the absence of conflict, but peace refers to wholeness in every facet. And so you are to live out your care for one another, seeking one another's good, seeking one another's health, both in spiritual matters and in physical matters. For you have the bond of peace as the gift of the Holy Spirit, who has made you one. And this word bond shares the same root word, As Paul being a prisoner for Christ back in chapter one. In verse one. You are tied together by the Spirit, just as Paul is shackled to his guard. You're stuck with each other. What a glorious thing. And you won't find this unity outside of the church, outside of the spirit, for fallen humanity has no true unity because they don't have the spirit. They have nothing transcendent on which to base their unity. People in the world do unite on the basis of common cause and thank God for that. And yet, people's self-interest change. People who shared common cause change their minds or discover that they may have less in common than they thought. But not so with you in the church. For you have God Himself to bind you together, and God can never be separated. And so Christ has purchased true peace for you. For He has reconciled you all to God. He is your peace, as He has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, reconciling you to God in one body through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. That's in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul is speaking of the hostility between Jew and Gentile. People who hated each other in the ancient world. They thought each other was jerks. And frankly, if they could have, they would have wiped each other off the face of the earth. This isn't biblical, but a proverb that they taught one another among the Jewish people of Jesus' day was that if you saw a Gentile woman in labor, you should not help her. For it would be a sin to bring a Gentile child into the world. That's the kind of hatred that Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 2. And yet this hostility is broken down in Christ. Some of the worst hatred possibly the worst hatred in human history, was ended by Christ on the cross. So that now in the church, neither Jew nor Gentile means anything because of what Christ has done. And it's the same for you today. People from different walks of life, different political views, different ethnicities, people groups who were at war with one another, in previous times now are all one in Christ so that you have more to share with your brothers and sisters halfway across the world than you do with some of your own countrymen here in the United States this is the peace that Christ has purchased for you it is the bond of peace that you must be eager to maintain in the Holy Spirit And so as you walk worthy of your calling, this calling is first of all expressed in Christian unity. As Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 again, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the calling to which you have been called. And by faith, God gives you his strength so that you may live worthily of this calling. And God testifies to the world through your unity. God shows the world his glory and the salvation that has been worked by Christ. So as you walk with one another in humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, God is glorified. For as you walk this way, you are walking in new life. You are walking in the resurrection. Walking as a people who will not die again. This is community life in the kingdom of heaven. And this is the life that God has for you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this gift of the unity of the Spirit. And we pray that you would strengthen us all our days to walk in this unity out of the love that Christ has shown to us. So we pray that you would make us eager to live and love and serve one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.